So last week, if you weren't here, we saw how God had sent the angel Gabriel to announce the birth of a son to an infertile couple who thought they would never be able to have children. That son was John, John the Baptist. But they were told that their son would prepare the way for one who was greater still. And in today's passage, we're going to read, Gabriel has another message to deliver. He delivers it to a young woman, barely in her teens, named Mary, and she will bear that greater one. I want you to look in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Keep in mind, Mary is a very young woman, hardly more than a girl. She lives in this small hamlet known as Nazareth. She's engaged, but she's actually still living at home. So her life is very humble and it's very small. And now an angel comes and says, you are highly favored in heaven. And she thinks, what, me? Me? And then the angel says, the Lord is with you. You Go back to the Old Testament. You see, when God sent Moses to Egypt, the Lord was with him. When Gabriel was told to go to war, the Lord was with him. That language marks a great task. When God calls one to a great task, he reassures them, I will be with you. Now the angel comes to Mary and says, the Lord is with you. And she has to think, with me for what? What kind of task am I to do? Somebody like me. God couldn't possibly call me to something great. Or perhaps he could. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This son, he's descended from David and he's going to take David's throne, which means he is going to be the Messiah. But not just a human figure merely, but he will be called son of the most high. So this Messiah will rule from a throne in heaven and he will rule forever. His name is Jesus, which means savior. So what is the task to which Mary is called? She is called to mother the Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. How can this be? I've never known a man. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, will overshadow you, the powerful presence of God. And through a creative miracle, Jesus will be conceived in her womb. Now, this distinguishes Jesus from John. You notice John is filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He is to be a great prophet of God. But Jesus is not simply filled with the Spirit in the womb. Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. His very being, his very identity is inseparable from the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's because he is the Holy One, the Son of God, greater than John the Baptist, a prophet and more than a prophet. And so, no word of God will fail, says the angel. Now, obviously, this involves a great miracle, and there are people who are skeptical. How could such a thing happen? Well, if you believe in the actual presence and reality of God, then miracles can happen. But if you don't believe in that, then certainly this didn't happen. Now you need to explain Jesus, the life he lived, the things he taught, the miracles he did, and his resurrection from the dead. You can deny all of those because you decide in advance that that couldn't possibly happen. But what if there is a God? And what if this man, unlike any other, is God the Son present among us? What if that's so? Then then the impossible becomes possible and the word of God does not fail. How does Mary respond to all this? She responds like the, the ideal disciple. I am the Lord's servant, she said. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Whatever you want, God, that's what I want. Don't miss the courage there. She knows in an instant that this means bearing a stigma. She will bear it. Her family will bear it. A short time later, she's going to learn of other suffering that will come to her. In fact, the prophetic word says it'll be like a sword running through her heart when she sees her son crucified. She's going to suffer for this, but she knows up front, whatever it takes, I am the Lord's servant. Your word will word be fulfilled, Lord. Mary's an impressive believer, but the passage obviously is about her son. It's about Jesus. And the thing that strikes me is how it highlights the uniqueness of Jesus. See, if you look around the world and you look through history, you're going to find lots of prophets. You're going to find lots of sages. You're going to find saints, holy people, people who even claim to do great miracles. You're going to find teachers of religions, even founders of religion. You're going to find many different ones, but Jesus is more than all of them. 
because everyone other than Christ is a human being, perhaps influenced by God, perhaps influenced by their own imagination, but they're all a mere human being. But here is Jesus, he's something different. As I said a moment ago, by the direct creative miracle of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he comes into existence. So Jesus is the son of God. The full meaning of that has to be emphasized. As Christians, we believe in one God who somehow mysteriously exists eternally in three persons. And so God the Son comes and takes on humanity. The word we use for that is incarnation. It means literally enfleshment. God the Son becomes a human being, takes on human flesh. So Jesus Christ is a man. He's as human as all of us. He is fully a human being, but not merely a human being. There is something extra about Jesus. God has come to us. That's an extraordinary claim. That's extraordinary, the thought that God actually comes to us in this way. It's extraordinary, but also blessed. Even if you don't believe it, you should want to believe it. You should want to believe in a God who cares so for humanity that he comes to live among them, even at great cost to himself. Think of Calvary. You should want to believe it. It's so beautiful that it ought to be true. I think it is true, but it ought to be true because of the glorious picture it gives us of God. Jesus is more than because he is God with us. Now, that means he is utterly unique, not like other prophets. He is a prophet, but more than a prophet, not like other holy people. He is holy, but in a whole different category. He's not like us only more than. I mean, he is like us as human, but I mean, he's not like a prophet only more than. He's a prophet and more than into a whole different classification of being. <laughs> he is God the Son with us. That's why as Christians, we focus on Jesus. Sometimes people don't understand that. They think we're being arrogant. We're talking all about Jesus. Well, what about all these other religious leaders? What about, what about these great historic personages and their teachings? What about these various religions? All you do is talk about Jesus like he's the only one. And we sort of step into it because we say he's the way, the truth, and the life. But why do we say that? Why do we say that? Linda and I, a couple of months ago, spent some time in the hill country and we rented a small house, and in the evening, we went out onto the patio, and you look up in the sky, and the moon was one day shy of being a full moon, and it was so bright. Interestingly, it lit up the darkness around us. It was still dark, but you could see to make your way through the, the wooded area that was right in front or right behind the house where we were looking this bright moon. And yet as bright as the moon was, it doesn't emit its own light, right? The moon reflects the light of the sun. And so when the morning came and the sun rose, the moon disappeared. I mean, early on, you could see just a faint outline of it, but you 
You didn't think of the moon anymore because its brightness compared to the glow of the sun was as nothing. And so it is with Christ. God the Son has come in human flesh. It's like the rising of the sun. And so we see his glory and every other glory is put in the shade. I mean, it may have helped in days of darkness and other religions and other philosophies, whatever errors there may be, there is much truth there is all and all truth is God's truth. And so they reflect some of God's truth and people are guided by them. We're not saying everything is wrong, but what we're saying is when the sun has risen, why should we bother with the moons around us? And so Jesus is God the Son in flesh, utterly unique, and we look to him, not because we hold anything against anyone else, but because because he's got the son. That's why. That's why. One day, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up to a mountaintop, and there the Bible says he was transfigured. What that means is the glory that belonged to him as the son suddenly became visible. His robe actually became glistening white, and it was as if he glowed as the the presence of God was now manifest before Peter, James, and John. And Elijah and Moses appeared, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter was out of his mind. <laughs> he says, Lord, let me, let me build three tabernacles so that everybody has a place to stay, and we spend the night, we can camp out right here. And then a voice from heaven spoke, and the three disciples fell on their face, fearful to even look. The voice said, this is my son whom I have chosen. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus came and lifted them up. They looked up and only Jesus was there. The others had left. That's what we're talking about. When we see the glory of Jesus Christ, everyone else disappears. Elijah and Moses, they are gone. Every other prophet or teacher or philosopher, they are gone. We listen to him. So it's important that we be faithful to him, that we be loyal to him, that we serve him because he is who he is. And then because he's unique, I mean, here we have God the Son coming as a savior, remember his name, because he's unique, his salvation is unique. That's really important to emphasize because a lot of people proclaim gospels. That is, they tell people how to live better lives and how to find happiness and all the rest. Philosophies, religions, they all teach different things. But when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're talking about something that is unique and something different. It's like the difference between revision and revolution. Revision just improves on something that already exists. 
revolution brings about something new. So just yesterday, I saw I had a notification, time to update my operating system on my laptop, so I did. It's kind of a hassle, I know, because everything has to shut down and load back up, but, but I do it, unlike my wife. She will let it sit there forever. One time I looked at her phone, and I don't know, how, she had like 37 updates available, something like that, all her apps and operating system. And I said, Linda, you got to update this stuff. I perceive she's gotten better since I've nagged her over it. Have you gotten better? A little bit better? Yeah. But she doesn't always update. So, so you run that update, and what does it do? Well, it doesn't change your life. It improves, it improves your operating system or improves your app marginally. So when I updated this, I didn't notice any change, but I know it's probably more stable. Security's probably better. There's some little tweak that I'll never, never pay attention to. It can do now. But over time, you update continually and changes come, and a lot of times they're really handy. Some of the apps, you know, with the updates, it's like, oh, I like that feature. And you start using it, and you think, how did I ever live without it? But these are all revisions. They're small, incremental changes. They don't really change things dramatically. And when I first started teaching at Baylor, I was working on an article for a journal, and I knew I was going to have to work in various places, and I had a computer in my office, a desktop computer, but the only laptop I had was my own personal laptop, and it was an old, let me change that, it was an ancient laptop. It was a compact laptop. It was running the Windows 3.1 operating system. Yeah. 3.1. Now, this was in the 2000s, you understand. This is in the 2000s. This is 3.1. This is before Windows 95 that I presume came out in 1995. Before Windows 98 came out in 98. This is old, Windows 3.1. It was not fast. I was running some ancient version of Word on it, and I'm working on the, working on the article. It was slow. It was clunky. I'd do a lot of workarounds to make things happen. I eventually got through it. It worked, but it wasn't long. Once I finished the article, it just went kaput and wouldn't, wouldn't even start anymore. I was relieved I at least got the article published. I didn't have to, I didn't have to rewrite everything. But after that, it seemed fitting that I'd get a new laptop with a new operating system and new software, which I did, and it was like I'd been born again. I, this was amazing. It was so fast, and it did so many things my old one wouldn't do. I was like a kid in a candy shop, just exploring all these things on this brand new laptop. It was transformative. Formative. See, when Jesus comes, he doesn't just do updates on our life as it is, little incremental changes. It's something more dramatic than that. Maybe speaking in terms of a new computer, new software, maybe that's not the best analogy. Let's use his. He has a teacher among the Jews come to visit him one night. The man's name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a righteous man. He was a good man. But he had, let's say, limited horizons. 
He thought of living for God as essentially, with God's help, doing the best you can. Now, I'm sure if Nicodemus were here, he wouldn't like me characterizing his beliefs in that way. But I think that's fair. We are created to serve God, and we should do the best we can, and God will help us, but, but it's on that level. And Jesus said to him, first thing he said, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. I mean, he pulls him up short. He wants him to know, you're missing it, Nicodemus. You don't have it right. And then he says to him something that left Nicodemus incredulous. He's, he, Nicodemus ends up saying, how can these things be? Jesus said to him, John 3, 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, what he means by that, at least part of what he means by that, is we're all flesh and blood, and flesh and blood gives birth to flesh and blood. The merely human gives birth to what is merely human. And if if Nicodemus is right, then the merely human just needs to clean itself up, needs to do better with God's help, but it's still working on the plane of flesh and blood. And he says, so long as we're working on that plane, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. That is, you can't experience what God wants you to experience. Well, Jesus is bringing something new, something Nicodemus hadn't heard about and something that so many people haven't heard about. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit, he means the spirit of God gives birth to spirit. He means a transformation inside, making someone a new person. This isn't a revision or an update. This is a revolution or a new birth. Wow, that's good news. That's the salvation that Jesus brings to us. The spirit of God changes us by giving us a new spiritual life. That's why, by the way, as Christians, we're more optimistic about people than any other people on earth. We're more optimistic because we know even if they, even if they think they can't change, even if they think they're stuck and they'll never get free, Jesus Christ is still Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior, and by the power of his Spirit, he can make them new. If it's just an update, maybe not. But if it's a new birth, he can do it, and he can do it for you. And I just want to conclude with a, a word for anyone that, that you're in this undecided place. You, you, you are suspecting at this point that you need God, and for you, you understand. That means, that means receiving Christ, getting really serious about it, not some prayer that maybe you prayed some point in the past, but it never really took because you never really meant it. And you know that now. I'm not accusing you. It's just that I've talked to a lot of people, and I know a lot of people have been there, and, and you may be there now. You may think that you can't change, but you can change. Jesus spoke of his teaching as new wine. 
And he said, if you put new wine into old wine skins that are inflexible and hard, when it ferments, it'll burst those skins and you lose everything. What he's saying is new wine can cause some disruptions. And sometimes I think that's why we hold back because we know that. And Jesus points out that you come with new wine and some people say, ah, now the old is better. And you might be tempted to say that. I mean, you're intrigued. You're hopeful even. You hear this about Christ and you think, maybe I can change, but you're not quite sure. And you think it can really disrupt things for you. And maybe, maybe you just need an update, just one more update, just one more revision, one more incremental change, improve this habit or that, and maybe life's going to be different. Well, you can try it again if you want, or, or you can believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God, Savior of the world, and you can believe that he can save you if you turn to him. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and and we're going to have a, a, a time just of, of, to turn our thoughts to Christ, to, to worship, to do business with God. As we do, there'll be people at these lighted crosses. You may want someone to pray with you. It's a terrible thing to feel like you go to church and there's no one who will pray with you. There are people here, trained people, who will pray with you if you have a need or there's someone who's on your heart who has a need. But let's turn to the Lord. Let's reflect on these things. We serve the Messiah, Son of the Most High God, Savior of the world, and the salvation we have is like none other. I want Jesus. I want all of Jesus, don't you? And if you need Christ as your Savior, receive him now. Submit to him now. Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in us in this very moment, that you would work by your power in us and free us from everything that would hold us back from serving you. In Christ's name we pray it, amen.